Brian, this is Avery Andon. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with Paint the Town. My pleasure. We, uh... Yeah, my pleasure. Where, where are you calling from, Avery? So I'm calling from Miami. We've actually been under... I've personally been under self-quarantine for about six or seven weeks now, which is a lot longer than the rest of the United States, simply because I have a lot of friends in Italy and was hearing what a devastating impact it had here and just kind of was, was early in the assumption that it had no choice but to land on our shores as well. Yeah, well, it, we've been uh, also six or seven weeks in self-isolation here. But you were very early. Well done. I mean, well done. Getting... You know, it was really just, I have friends in Milan, and the calls I was getting from them made it seem like it was a war zone. So we were fortunate, and like it really didn't change much aside from the fact that when we went grocery shopping for the first time, it was still normal instead of a lot of the other people that started too late and it was already, you know, absolute chaos and panic. I've had a really fun time, you know, digging into your history and your past. I think one of the, the coolest things that I saw, you know, I'm 37 and still can't figure out what to do with my life, but it seems like you've been locked in and passionate and focused on art since, you know, a very young age. Yeah, it's the only thing I can do, really. I'm not very much. I'm not very good at doing anything uh, else but that. So it's not been a great difficulty for me to work out since I'm no good at anything else. I just think that that's some. That's a rare thing that artists, musicians, certain athletes have that you just know what your passion is, know what your skill is, and spend your entire life refining it and appreciating it and building it and I think that's such a beautiful thing well thank you it's kind of you to say it's certainly it's certainly you know been a good structure on which I can hang everything that I do in every way really. I mean we're going through such disorienting times now we're kind of reviewing everything aren't we similar to everyone else in the art world you also weren't unaffected you had a show coming up at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York City which is obviously been postponed. Aside from that, how have yeah, you been well, navigating? No, we had an exhibition opening in, in New York and one a month later in London, both of which, of course, have been postponed. The Museum of Art and Design in New York installed the exhibition and were unable to actually open it after a great deal of work. But, you know, it, it, that's a pattern familiar to so many people in so many walks of life. It's not exclusive, of course, to the art world, but this COVID-19 crisis... No, it, it takes uh, no prisoners. It doesn't care what you do, where you do it. It's affecting everyone without bias. Yes. It, somebody, I heard it said the other day that it was the great leveler. But it was Madonna that said that. Oh, was it? I'm not at all surprised. She actually got a lot of flack for saying that because she took a video laying in a bathtub strewn with roses and said it's the great leveler. And then a day later posted a video doing these, you know, crazy physical therapy treatments with her entire staff of 10 present helping her. And so she's she was kind of the poster child of a lot of celebrities getting flack for trying to bring people into their world during quarantine and it's just so privileged and different from the experience of the average person in quarantine that there's been a real blowback yeah. against them which i understand yeah i wasn't aware of that i didn't realize that that, that she had said that or that the or that there'd been that kind of uh, movement of reaction but to uh, of course, as, as everybody knows, it's not a leveler. It's much more violent than things than something that levels. Yeah. And if one had a kind of measuring device that was able to gauge suffering, we would see that it, there's nothing leveling about it at all. Actually, the people who suffer are, as always, the people who are the most vulnerable and the most needy. Yeah. And you, you can, of course, you know, you can suffer in luxury and you can suffer in comfort almost. The idea that, 
to this level. It's, it's, I mean, in England, I, don't, I, I can imagine. I can imagine how odd it is in Miami, knowing Miami quite well. And I, I remember shortly after the 9/11 event, I was in Miami staying at the Delano, and, and there was a fear that there was a second wave of attacks, terrorism that yeah. was to be expressed as as uh, chemical warfare of some sort or, or germ warfare. And I remember that the, a couple of days in Miami when there was this overbearing fear that we were going to hit, be hit by something not dissimilar to COVID-19 then, sent everybody into a paroxysm of fear and paralysis. Of course, now that fear that we just have a sniff of in the aftermath of 9/11, when do you recall that? Yes, uh, yes, I was, I was, I was, I was there. younger in high school, but I definitely will never forget it. My my father yeah, was actually booked. My father was booked on the TWA flight. I believe it was from Los Angeles to New York or New York to Los Angeles. One of the flights that ended up coming down. My father had a ticket for, and it's a crazy story. My godfather who worked in the music business and actually was from London, he managed Prince. And he got cancer and he died the week before 9-11. So my father had to change his ticket and go a couple days earlier. But he had the original ticket stub. This is back when travel agents would still wow. mail, mail you a ticket. And to change it, you'd have to go there and they'd give you a new one. So he had the physical ticket from the flight that went down in, in 9-11, which was pretty jarring because I was in school at the time and I had no idea. I thought for all, for all I knew, he was on the flight. So yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that day. It was, it was very poignant to me as well. Yeah, and uh, as I say, I remember, I was in Miami at that time and I remember everybody in the hotel being frightened of going out because there was this fear. The second wave of attack was a chemical or bacterial in nature. We were stuck in the hotel fearful of going out and not knowing what to do. Well, now it did only last two days and then it calmed down. But now six or seven weeks into a similar process where we know that this is not, this isn't actually an idea that there's something that might happen, but it actually is happening and we're right in the middle of it. It, of course, triggers all kinds of reactions of fears and vulnerabilities, and not least of which is the, the bewildering confusion that everything has gone into a different sense of scale. That those things that, you know, as the Book of Common Prayer says, that we have placed in jurisdiction over the things which are, the things which are not, and suddenly we're aware of it. So that all our value systems and our single point perspective understanding of how the world works has suddenly been thrust into a very different place. Yeah. I think that there's no one on earth now, artists or anybody else, who is not reviewing the nature of, of their priority systems, what the things they thought were important a couple of months ago, yep. are suddenly all altered. And the, the art world is not an exclusive world that exists outside of normality or, or outside of nature. We're all part of it. It's a little bit like that odd thing we have as human beings of thinking of ourselves as being, in some mysterious way, uh, being outside of nature, that we sit in some kind of elevated position overlooking nature. But in fact, we're part of it. We're just the same as all other organisms, but we do have a different set of skills. And this confused chaos of, of trying to kind of work this thing out. Everybody's trying to work it out. And artists, uh, not, no less than anybody else. Yeah, I guess I'm always someone that tries to look at the positives of everything. And so I guess the one positive I've taken from it is it has at least given me a real opportunity to sit down, slow down, take into account what's important to me 
and also selfishly work on some pet projects that have been on the back burner because life gets in the way and you get busy. I mean, I've been wanting to launch this podcast for two years now, and it took being forced at home for me to actually go out and I bought the recording studio gear. I set it up in my living room. I would have never taken that initiative if it weren't for someone saying, hey, slow down. You're not allowed to leave your house anymore. What are you going to do with your time? And so I've, I've been fortunate enough that one of the things I did, and, and I, you don't know much about me, but I started an online art gallery, an e-commerce art gallery called artlife.com back in late 2016, early 2017. And it's been interesting because everyone in the art world pushed back against that concept three, four years ago even, where, funny enough, Art Basel refused to allow me to apply. Three years in a row, they wouldn't even let me apply to their fair because I don't have physical brick-and-mortar locations. And they repeatedly refused me, and, and a lot of the other art fairs as well, wouldn't even allow me to apply because they didn't understand what I was doing and they, they didn't think that it was possible to have a respe respectful gallery. I have to say, I have to say that that's what you've just said is, is particularly interesting, not least because it confirms to me that Art Basel has got less to do with art than almost anything I can think of. <laughs> and the idea that one should kind of, an art fair, it, an art fair that censors and proposes an architecture for that which is acceptable in the world of art and that which is not. It is in self, it's a self-defeating phenomenon. The idea is a, as a proposition is self-defeating. Art opens windows onto opportunities and expectations and ambitions that are not normally in the, the orthodox list of ambitions that a normal rich yeah. person would have. It gives us an opportunity to dispel and to get rid of those things that cause us to follow the orthodox and the conventional in, in a way that prevents us from becoming ourselves. And I think that I, I've been looking at quite a bit of stuff on the internet over the last six or seven weeks, quite a lot of it from artists and people in the art world. And I can't help but thinking that a lot of it leads to a sort of incestuous self-love, a sort of parthenogenesis. And you can't expect reproduction from an ovum without fertilization. Yeah. And so it, presents, it represents to me a lot of the conversation that's going on at the moment represents to me a sort of monstrous pleonasm in which we are running towards the norm. Everybody seems, not everybody, but there seems to be a lot of people the, with a lot of us within this terrible confusion that is tempered with fear are finding ourselves rushing towards trying to find the conventional way to express our meaningfulness. And in a world that no long, longer has God, art becomes the most meaningful abstract guarantor of the meaningfulness of life to those of us who exist outside of a religious doctrine. It also seems to me that we're kind of rushing headlong, so many of us in this confusion, towards a normality that in itself is antithetical to the nature of art. I mean, it's interesting that when we, as we start talking, either you or I, I don't know which one of it was, but we talk about the Basel art there and the way we can market or display art. And I remain convinced that art belongs to everybody, that it is not an exclusive phenomenon, that indeed it may be best understood when the linguistic nature of art is absorbed into one's personality and we understand the languages. But one thing that it is not is something that belongs only to the privileged or to the educated. It's as much about instinct as it is about information or data. It's as much about the subjective as it is about the organized 
and measurable way science works, yeah. then we have a, suddenly, we're all catapulted into this similar circumstance. And I know that there are a lot more comfortable, I know I'm very lucky, I'm, I'm in a, so far, a very comfortable and the least comfortable aspect of my isolation is actually being with myself. It's not physical, they're not, it's not physical problems yep. or, it, it's about confrontation. And well, you know, you're I, I also, and I say this with the utmost respect and trepidation, but you are considered, and I was talking to my father the same, you're of an age that's considered the most susceptible and vulnerable to COVID-19. So has it affected you differently mentally? Are you taking additional precautions and steps as far as your safety and segregating yourself from others? Or, you know, like my father, he's, well, he yeah. hasn't really changed much of his... He refuses to, to change much of his schedule and the way he lives. <laughs> I do not have a casual relationship to oblivion. You know, I, I am concerned about... You know, I have an existential fear about what what can happen. And I've taken the position that until there is a vaccine and I am vaccinated, it is unlikely that I will resume normal life. Yeah. I feel uh, much more threatened. I think that we can handle this COVID-19 business. We can get through that. Yeah, we can. My fear it's is just going to take time. The threat of nuclear war and the lack of concern as the threat of the destruction of organized human life, the yeah. threat of omnicide. And while we've got a circus buffoon in Downing Street and a sociopathic moron in the White House, uh, <laughs> I can't see that we have any hope of combating this, the, the true existential threat, which is this absurd and insane preoccupation we have with growth and avarice and self-advancement. And if art tells you anything, it tells you that we are part of an interlocking system of experience that brings everybody and everyone together. So that, you know, our, it's not just our kind of cellular structure that connects us to the rest of the world. It, it is our instinctive, we have an instinctive nature that can protect us from this kind of existential crisis. But that nature is inhibited and compromised and even undermined by our obsessive avarice and our desire to move forward and be successful in the most conventional and orthodox ways. And our art is meant to give us an opportunity to understand that conventional advancement is not necessarily a good thing. It's not only necessarily a good, not only not a good thing, but by advancing ourselves spiritually and moral. I mean, I think art is inexorably linked to moral, a skeletal moral system. That if you become an artist, it's a very important job being an artist. It's an important job because it's artists open windows that look out onto that are otherwise impossible to see. And we do that because we don't, as artists, subscribe to the methodologies and systems that are only considered to be significant because they can be measured. Yeah. You know, art can't be measured in the same way. And the, we've got lost, I mean, the whole thing about art being connected to galleries it's such a kind of self-hating thing. It's such a way of undermining the fundamental honesty and innocence of art. And the history of art and the history of architecture and design are linked to like siblings. And modernity wrenched them apart, celebrating portable art as a kind of, I don't know, what would you call it, a monetized market, distancing design and architecture and art from the inevitable and vital interaction that the various disciplines have to have, if they're going to be of any use to us, if it's actually in any way meaningful. 
aside from being a very accomplished and intriguing artist. And I saw one thing I didn't notice until I, I was looking over things again today is that you've worked with a lot of architects, including Zaha Hadid, which is one of my favorite architects in the absolute world. I'm just a huge fan of her work. One of my friends actually developed a building here in Miami called 1000 Museum with Zaha. And it's actually, oh, yeah, it's the last project she ever did before she unfortunately passed away. So I, came, I came to Miami with her several times when she was working on that project. No way. And yeah, she was, no, she, Zaha was probably my closest friend in the world. Yeah. Wow. And, what a, uh, she was an absolute legend. She was certainly uh, a handful, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, Zaha was somebody who had a profound belief in the idea that art was not an exclusive thing. And the way art and architecture work, in our kind of crazy pursuit of success, it, it, the art world has become something almost opposite to what art is about. And uh, historically, art and architecture have been linked, as, as I said earlier, like siblings or like the same sides of a, of a single coin. And artists have worked in collaboration with architects, with masons, with woodworkers, with sculptors, with glaziers, with designers of all sorts, historically, in order to produce an environment that has a poetic significance and a visionary side to it that lifts one up above the sight of the, the norm and takes us into seeing what might be rather than what appears to be. Yeah. And Zaha was, Zaha was somebody who profoundly understood that and who was incredibly supportive of me for the last 40 years in my position that art and architecture belong together. And that the idea that you take art out of the environment and put it into an alien environment, which is a gallery, and it has no connection anymore with the built world, with the urban fabric, is to emasculate it of its potential to actually be a service to humanity. That's a really fascinating way of looking at it. So seeing that you love architecture, are there any specific buildings that you absolutely love and consider some of the best designed buildings in the world? Are you talking about in in terms of the modern period? I'd say in terms of the modern period. In terms of buildings that are still around that, that our listeners could listen to or look up that you find more fascinating and intriguing design wise than others. I would say certainly Zaha represents her building. I think her building in Baku is extraordinary. Her building in Seoul in Korea allows the imagination to give flight in a way that very few buildings actually have since the Gothic period. I think of Norman Foster's extraordinary bridge in France and of his Reichstag, of some of the great modernists like me, Sander Rowe, I still, I mean, it still sends shivers up my back to think of standing in front of the Seagram building in New York. The endless uh, achievement of the United States in terms of 20th and 21st century architecture from Louis Sullivan to Frank Lloyd Wright, I don't think I've ever been anywhere that has touched my soul with the same delicate focus and impact that falling water has or the Johnson & Johnson building by Frank Lloyd Wright, or indeed the Guggenheim Museum. We are so lucky. And, and of course, Frank Lloyd Wright has a tremendous affinity with art. And art and architecture in Frank Lloyd Wright started to function as a single symbiotic experience that takes us right back to the Gothic and the extraordinary... I mean, well... As far as I'm concerned, the greatest achievement of Western man is the Gothic cathedral. I can think of nothing that takes our spiritual ambition and our poetic capacity to be visionary to a greater height or a greater place than the Gothic cathedral does. And as we come through time, 
true to the modern period. There are very few, I mean, of course there are, one can think of so many, Palladio of Michelangelo, Brunelleschi and Bramanti, and the great neoclassical architects, and then the Gothic revival. One can think of so many achievements that we've made as human beings that have not been focused on the idea that art is a monetized and portable commodity, but that it is the a collaborative exercise between multiple persons who have singular gifts that when combined together become a tornado of aesthetic experience that can dislodge us from the pursuit of the orthodox and the conventional to the pursuit of an unknown spiritual destination. And Zaha, as far as I'm concerned, triggered such feelings in me. I mean, she said, as I remember very well Zaha saying to me that as you get older, you get tired and there's no avoiding it. And artists imagine they won't ever get tired. But it's true. You do just get worn out after a certain time and you begin to feel psychologically and physically exhausted. And it's not making the art that does that to one. It's the meeting. It's the money. It's the worry, it's the ambition, it's the never-ending struggle to be taken seriously. And the notion that an, as an artist signs up to a moral or ethical code of standards has always driven my actions, both as an artist and as a person. And I think that perhaps this tail-end inheritance from William Morris, for me, or my bringing up, that art should inhabit all experience and should influence everything. And that an artist lives the artistic life. He's not only an artist when he's in the studio, he's an artist when he's, whatever he's doing, if you're an artist, that is what art is. And I have a tremendous belief that art is much more than something that can be carried into and out of galleries. I absolutely agree. And I think some of the coolest Modern art I've seen has been site-specific, commissioned for specific rooms, specific buildings, specific installations where the artist knew exactly the surroundings and the parameters in which it was going to be installed. I think that that you're absolutely yeah. right. And the way you speak of architecture is so eloquent. It, it almost brought tears to my eyes. I, I need to reevaluate my entire relationship with architecture. <laughs> That was beautiful. You know, stained glass, which is something that takes up a great deal of my time, and the installation of stained glass into architects. And I've worked with a lot of great, I've been lucky to have worked with a lot of great architects of our time, including Zaha and Norman Foster and Zizodaki and Oscar Niemeyer and IMP. I mean, I've been really fortunate in being able to engage with architects who have who've extended my kind of visionary perimeters. But it, particularly with saying that, it, 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 art must contextual and spatially respond to the building as much as it must work as flat art. So whilst morphing into a kind of sublimated oneness, it's got to declare its poetic independence. Yeah. So it's got to be so many things at the same time so that the artist is not at the service of architects, but at the service of architecture. As an artist, I have only one master. I answer only to one authority, and it is a lot greater. Of it. The authority I answer to is rather more substantial than the Basel Art Fair. And on the face of, of it, you know, if you look at most artists, like my own, which have a... If you, you know, my life is a long production of paintings and drawings, many of which I never sell. And you would look at that life as being irrational. And there's no complicated reason beyond it than being what I am. You know, flowers turn to the sun in an act of tropism. Birds fly. Bees make honey. I paint. And paintings are experiment expressed. And whether there's a measurable result from the experience is not at all important. The interesting thing is the what-if factor. What if we move from here, this or that way? The what-if is everything. Without the what-if, poetry becomes journalism. 
You know, Richter's very good at delivering the what if factor, and he's also good at carrying it through. The, you know, what would happen if I did this? That's the kind of what drives an artist, isn't it? But what if? What if I did that? And we have a real function. You know, we really do have a tremendous function. We have a real use, a job to fulfill. And that job is securing in people the confidence that they are in themselves, of themselves, valid. That they don't need to be rendered valid by giving points, tips, money, by giving, by having been given medals or positions of authority and of distinction. We are valid because like everything else in the world, we act in the same way as flowers in the act of tropism. We, we like to turn our faces to the sun. And in so doing, we are engaged in a natural act, which is creating art. And when we do that, you know, how can an artist expect to fulfill his job and do his job well if he's buying into the same set of dubious and contemptible measuring systems that the rest of the world has? You know, when we just got to stop talking about fucking money and about yep. fucking fame and about fucking success when we have the capacity surrounding us all the time actually just to be. Because Which is something that actually leads me in, and, and I want to use that as a segue to something that's obviously an important additional you know, footnote in your life is that you were named as the executor of Francis Bacon's estate. And that's in and of itself. And Zaha. And Zaha as well. I didn't know that. Wow. I know. I know. Um, I can tell you it is. It, I, I could, it, if they weren't dead, I'd kill both of them. Jesus. Yeah, like, yeah, that's a lot of work. That is a lot. I know just from my mom having to be the executor of my grandfather's estate, it's a shitload of work. <laughs> That's, it's, it's well, like an ultimate blessing and also a huge amount of additional work for you. So hats off to you that you are now the executor to two monumental artists of their time. Francis, well, in it particular. Certainly wasn't by, yeah, it certainly wasn't by desire, I can assure <laughs> you. And just, you just feel the hand you're dealt and the sooner you get through it, the better, but as far as I'm concerned, the only way I was able to deal, actually, with being the executor to either Francis or Zaha was by turning the act into itself a work of art. I listened to the advice of people who understood and had greater skills and knowledge and experience of me in legal matters and the like. But yep. in the end, the decisions I make, I stand or fall by on my own because they are decisions that have been made out of an artistic life, not out of the life of a suit seeking to become animate. Well, that's uh, what, what I was going to say, because, you know, it, it, from the eyes of someone like myself, I'm, I'm an art dealer for years, and when I think of being the executor of the state, it becomes extremely transactional and... You know, the focus somehow or another always ends up on the fact that, you know, someone like Francis Bacon, his art is extremely valuable and it's impossible for it not to become commoditized by people that ultimately probably don't appreciate or love his work the way that, that they should. And that's something that I'm friends with a couple other people. I'm friends with the executor of Roy Lichtenstein's estate. Really interesting guy that, that lives out in Long Island. And he is always battling with that. Who actually appreciates the work? Who is genuinely intrigued and passionate about collecting his work? And who is just looking to commoditize it, invest $3 million now, sell it for $6 million tomorrow type of thing? So how do you balance that? You balance it by trying to be a force for poetic reason within a world that is driven by and insatiably hungry for money. Yeah. And so you cannot become tied up within that pursuit because, first of all, how can you expect 
to speak truth to power if power is compromising you, or if power is paying your rent, or if power is giving you that which you couldn't get any other way. As far as my relationship with my deceased friends, for whom I, I might, I have, you know, it's an odd thing. It's just you deal with the cards that you're, you know, you, you have, you, you play the cards that you're dealt. And, and unfortunately, my close association with the art world via Francis and Zaha has been also a close association, closer than I would ever have wanted to have been, with the world of avarice and deceit and, and ambition at the expense of all other things around. And, you know... What are you... Sorry say, to interrupt you. What do you consider the difference in overseeing these two estates, one being art, one being architecture? Are there different tasks and different responsibilities or is it somewhat similar in in obligation it's the same there's nothing i wish i could tell you that there was something extraordinary and unique about the management of the estate for francis bacon and zaha hadith but there isn't you deal with the same old almost biblical issues you deal with <laughs> avarice you deal with deceit you deal with everything really that is anti-art and you just try to protect you know art is essentially no matter how fervent it is no matter how authoritative it is art is essentially innocent it is an innocent phenomenon and we can't understand if we wrap it up if we because Francis once said to me that people weren't interested in his art on the whole they were interested in the number of notes that is art, how much the paintings were worth. And I thought... Which is a sad truth. I was young at the time he said that to me, and I thought it was a kind of cynical old bloke saying that to me. But life has taught me, and experience has taught me, that he is essentially right. Yeah. And if you are an artist, you sure your allegiance to a much higher authority than wealth. I mean, what is more juvenile than wealthy people showing off? What is more adolescent than using a work of art to demonstrate your, your own worthiness yep. in the world because you're capable of owning it? What is more puerile, asinine, absurd, pathetic than a world in which our most profound expressions of innocence are transmogrified by greed into objects of value that can be traded. We know it happens, but we don't, as artists, we don't need to support that system. And in the old days, artists and dealers were on opposite sides. They were not on the same side. You have, on the whole, you know, now, artists and dealers tend to kind of uh, wear the same uniform and carry the same arms. Yeah, and uh, particularly at the time like this, you know. Well, you know, it's funny because I interviewed uh, someone who actually said that they're friends with you. Do you know uh, Kenny Schachter, the art critic and well, art dealer? Kenny. Yeah, Kenny was a great friend of Zaha too. Yeah, so so I interviewed Kenny. One of the things that we both agreed because I'm an art collector myself. I think one of the greatest pleasures I get, and one of the the real benefits of being an art dealer is I occasionally do get a great deal on something that otherwise would be out of my range. And one of those actually includes, I, I have a work on paper by Francis Bacon. And Kenny and I were talking about what makes us different as collectors. I like to get right up in there and you know really look at and smell and experience a work of art and try to imagine what it was like in that artist's studio. Because I've done enough studio visits with modern artists that are batshit crazy, that I can only imagine what someone like Francis must have been like. And so when I look at that work on paper, it draws me back and I try to imagine being in his studio in London in, you know, 1965, what was surrounding him and what was going through his mind. But one of the most fascinating well, things... When, when I think uh, shortly after Francis died, 
when I think of the way, you know, the, his studio in South Kensington was, we, we didn't really know what to do with it. We, we, it was a small, very dense, intellectually, spiritually dense experience, a small space filled with the detritus of a lifetime experiment as an artist. And I used to just fill bin liners and carry whole packages of this stuff, not packages, just, just whole bin, bin liners, garbage bags full of it up from the studio at Reef Smooth to my home or studio. And I'd just spread it out on the floor and look at it and kind of fascinated by it really. But it didn't have this, I mean, the paintings were always valuable in my lifetime, Bacon's paintings, but they didn't have this kind of tragic value that they have now. Yeah. And there was an innocence attached to my engagement with Francis. I just saw the art. I, and and saw the kind of process and the journey that he took to make art, and it's just, it's you know it's the same, it's the same with art, the same with any artist. You've got to once you kind of attach yourself to a commitment to try and be as spiritually truthful as possible and to speak truth to power, all the other things fall away all the kind of uh, satellite issues that confuse us and get in the way of us understanding not only the world but ourselves, drop away. And the sheer, I think it's very difficult for people to look at Bacon's paintings now with the purity of innocence that's required to really, really enjoy them or to be altered by the experience. It is, of course, still possible, particularly if you don't know he's supposed to be a genius and if you don't know he's supposed to be valuable. And it's the same with art. You don't know the story. If you're not acquainted with the, the story, you've still got the possible potential for an innocent road to Damascus experience. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating art. because my experience and interaction with Francis Bacon as an artist was, I actually, to be honest, I had very little understanding of him. It's just, it's not the world that I, I have always specialized in. I've always been more, you know, pop masters from New York, Andy Warhol, Keith Haring, Basquiat, and, you know, more recently, the contemporary street artists, Banksy, Cause, the guys that are, you know, more in demand with the younger collector base. And I I ended up acquiring this bacon more just based on chance and opportunity. And it was an after the fact thing that now I have this on my wall that I started doing a deep dive into his career and his past and learning about his various bodies of work and the different transitions. So I found it fascinating because I always knew it had a value and I came from a place understanding that it was a value and I was buying it for a deal. And that was to be honest, the only reason I was acquiring, because I knew it was a great deal based on the, the intrinsic value. But once I had it on the wall, it took on a new meaning and a tr- appreciation. And then I took it upon myself to learn about him. So I think that there's no linear way of appreciating or learning an art or, or an artist. You know, there's... there's yeah, and not, nor indeed of, you know, art being restricted to a singular expression. It doesn't have to be something you can put on a wall. It actually can be the wall. It doesn't have to be even the wall. Yeah. It can be the ceiling above the wall. It can be the floor below the wall. It can be a gazantkenspeck. It can be, in fact, anything that an artist chooses it to be. But when it is at its, at its most resplendent and its most vital and urgent, is when it actually connects with human need. And it becomes symbiotically part of those things that we cannot function in an organized society without building urban infrastructure. When art becomes not a self-conscious part of that, but a natural part of that experience, where it's like musicians in a symphony orchestra playing together, and they arrive at a cadence, they arrive at a kind of melodic profundity that can only be achieved by working together. And when art is something that you only deliver or provide in order that it can be then traded on, you're on a sticky wicket. It can still happen, but it's just, you're on a very difficult and moving ground then. 
And the important thing is because art, you know, the, some of the, I don't despise the art world. You know, some of the, the best people I know are parts of the art world. I've known some visionary art dealers like Robert Fraser and Leo Castelli and Tony Shafrazi. And I'm fortunate enough to have been friends with John michel Basquiat and Keith Haring and Andy Warhol. And I lived in New York and they were all part of my life. And I was, I had the great pleasure really of just like seeing them as artists. They were never anything other than that to me. And so, you know, like when I first met Francis Bacon, had I been in awe of him, I couldn't have functioned with him at all. I wasn't in awe of him because I was in awe of art, not personality. Yeah. And I think biography and art are often mutually self-canceling. I think sometimes it's a lot better if you don't know anything about the artist or the architect at all. You, you know, one of the most wonderful things about the English parish church and the great medieval English parish church in parts of Britain exists at two mile centres across East Anglia or Yorkshire. And we have no idea who the authors of those great masterpieces were on the whole. We don't know who their names. We don't know the names of the architects. We don't know the names of the artists who produced the stained glass, which is without question the greatest of all medieval art produced. Is the stained glass. I agree. We can bring very few names to that. Is that because they were really just just nothing more than servants to the king and they were really just tradesmen at that point? Well, that's one way of looking at it, but they were certainly a great deal more than tradesmen because they're the people that gave us the keys that unlocked the door. I I more meant that in society at that time. Yes, in social terms. That might be the case. I remember when I was young and Norman Foster was a close friend when, when we were both a lot younger than we are now. And Norman saying to me once that his greatest ambition was to make a beautiful building that was anonymous. And that remained to me an extremely and profoundly spiritual engagement, description of an engagement of an artist with his art to this day. That remains to me an inspirational thing that Norman's probably forgotten he even said. But we have, when we aspire to anonymity, we aspire to poetry at its most pure. When we aspire to fame and we aspire to wealth, we aspire to something that is really very ordinary and very run-of-the-mill and can be found in any commercial environment and virtually any academic environment. But when the song becomes more significant than the singer, and when the song is what lifts you up above the ground and allows you to float with a greater view over the horizon and the distance than anything else does, then you are experiencing art. And there is nothing that is so kind of transformative as experiencing art innocently. And this COVID-19 crisis that we all find ourselves in now, it's a crisis, but it's a crisis that brings with it an opportunity. And with that opportunity comes a responsibility. And the responsibility is to actually be of use not to use art as a means to advance oneself, but as a means to advance ourselves. There is no place anymore in the world for thinking of social groups and social hierarchies and systems as being inferior or or superior one to the other. We either pass that, that puerile idea or we face an existential crisis until we start working together And, you know, why should I be so much richer than a nurse or a fireman? It's absurd. I am. And and I recognize the absurdity of it. But let's not start believing that we are in some way greater than those people or in some way more worthy. We are not. We are all part of an interlocking system of organic nature. We're all part of nature that if we actually, for one minute, just 
seek to be ourselves, who we are, not who other people want us to be, not who the art world wants us to be, but who we really are, we will be giving to the world that which is the only gift we're actually in a position to give to the world, ourselves. I love that. So beautifully spoken. Brian. Thank you so much for hopping on the call with me, brother. This was a really, this was an eloquent, beautiful moment for me. I mean, the way you speak about art is unlike any way I've ever heard it before. It's it's just really eye-opening. You know, it's... Uh, oh, well, you're very kind. I was thinking I'd completely let you down. No, man, the, this was incredible. Uh, I, I, I'm not... This was incredible. Oh, just well, just the way you speak so so naturally and passionately about it. I'm, this was really a, a fun time for me and a great experience. Hopefully our listeners learned something as well. Again, thank you so much. I hope you stay safe and hopefully when all this passes and you do get vaccine, I'd love to, to take you to lunch and get to, get to meet you in person. Avery, I would be delighted. That's the number one thing that we've lost as humans is that ability. I mean, think about think about that for a second, that that for me to ask you to go to lunch has suddenly taken on a connotation of like risk and the, the thought of the future. And wow, no, well, obviously we can't go to lunch now, but maybe in the future we well, might be able to meet. Depending on the restaurant you choose, that element <laughs> of the risk remains a I mean, that element of risk remains back to that. I really do, uh, I think it's communication and our capacity for cognizance is what interests me. And uh, talking to you today has been uh, a joy because even though the conversation spans thousands of miles and continents, we are able to touch on things that we both feel are precious and try and advance towards a protection of that which is precious and a throwing away of that which is false.